but we thank you because we can praise you, Lord, and we give you the glory. Lord, we just pray now that you would speak to us as a congregation, Father, Lord, that these would be your words and not mine. Speak, I pray, in your mighty name, Father. Amen. Amen. If you've got your Bibles with you, could you turn with me to Luke chapter 10? And just keep your finger in that. We're not going to read it straight away. So that's Luke chapter 10. I'll give you plenty of time to, to find it. So over the last few weeks, if you haven't been with us, just to let you know, we've shifted the, the focus of our Summer of Love series, where we've been talking about the Lord's love for us and how we might love the Lord to talk about our love for our neighbour. Matthew 22, verse 35 says, And one of them, a lawyer, asked, tempted him and saying, Master, what is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul and all your mind. And we've looked at that thoroughly, I believe. And then the second, this is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. And you know, it's apt that we've come to the end of this kind of statement, you shall love your neighbour as yourself, when we begin a week where we're going to start to see quite a lot of our neighbours really, the people that live around about in and out of the building. Over the last few weeks we've explored this in a very deliberate fashion, looking at the three different elements that make it up. What kind of love should we show our neighbour? How might we love ourselves, which is an example of how we love our neighbour? And of course, finally, who is my neighbour? And today we'll be talking about who is my neighbour. But just to recap, the love that we must show is that example that's given to us by Christ Jesus in Philippians. That he humbled himself as a man, obedient unto death. I always find that's a tad inconvenient when you read that. Because it means that nobody can irritate you enough that it's okay not to love them. Because Jesus was willing to go all the way to death. So it really doesn't matter how much they inconvenience you, how much they can wind you up, whether it be insignificantly, they keep grinding their teeth during the service, or they always bring sweets with wrappers. Although I think we'll hear enough of that today with the wind blowing behind me. In the crinkly. Just so you know that when we're finished, nobody needs to worry about their turkeys this Christmas. <laughs> yeah. It can be inconvenient, that, but that's the lesson that the Lord gives us. If he's willing to go all the way to death, what's our excuse? We have no excuse. We must forgive them. We must love them. Why? Because it's the love of God is in us, then we should love one another. And that's what it says in 1 John 4. If the love of God is in us, then we should love one another. So the love that we must show is humble and it's obedient. It prefers others as Christ preferred our salvation over his own life. He willingly gave it. And we do it. Because we must be obedient to God's calling in our lives, which is to love one another. As Christ took the cup that he wanted to be passed away, we too must take that cup that sometimes we wish we didn't have to take. 
to deal with that person we wish we didn't have to deal with, to get on with people who wind us up in many different ways. And how might we love each other? Well, we talked about this last week. In this, we navigated those difficult waters of the difference between self-love, which is good, and self-worship, which is very, very bad. The answer to which is realising that self-love isn't about how we treat ourselves. I remember I used to look at that where it said, uh, love uh, one another as you love yourselves. And I think, wow, how much do I love myself? It's not about loving yourself, but it's how we might treat others. Not in the negative, as in we don't lie to people because we don't want them to lie to us, but in the positive. We are kind to people because we want them to be kind to us. Not with a promise that they will be kind to you, but because the Lord said that we should treat others as we ourselves want to be treated. You know, it says that if you love somebody instead of hating them, it is like tipping red-hot coals upon their head. Now, I can't imagine anything that would be more painful than tipping red-hot coals on somebody's head. But that's what it's like to love somebody who hates you. By loving them back and showing them love and showing them the kindness and showing them what God has done in your life. Friends, that is the only way that we will be revolutionary in this place. Because any person can treat somebody as they deserve. But to treat somebody in kindness when they don't deserve it at all. That is a godly trait that we must come to the Holy Spirit about. And that the Lord is willing that we would do because it's in his scriptures. For God so loved us that we might love one another. And that's an important promise. And why did the Lord put it in such a way as to love our neighbour as ourselves? Because, friends, nobody knows how well you want to be treated than you. Every one of us knows what we like. Every one of us knows the way that we want to be treated. Every one of us knows when we've been slighted by somebody and we count it up and add it to. So if you know how you want to be treated, you know that better than anybody, then you know how to treat somebody because you know exactly how you want to be treated so you pass that on to somebody else treat them in their way why not for what you will get back but because God loved us first amen friends it will have such a positive impact people will see a definite change in you because it's not logical. It's not sent. People say, well, if they do that to me, then I'm going to do it back to them. That's the way of the world, an eye for an eye. But Jesus said, don't be like that. You know, Gandhi's famous for saying, an eye for an eye will leave us all blind. And anybody who's ever had to work through the First World War, trying to instruct it to children, and they go, but why did it start? Is the answer of most history teachers. And the answer is, it's an eye for an eye. They did this, so we did that, so they did that, so we did that, and in the end, 40 million people died. That's how the First World War started, friends. And that's where an eye for an eye leads us. It's not the way of Christ. It's not the way of a Christian. But then we are left with this last quandary. Who is my neighbour? So we know now that we must love people humbly. We know we must treat them the way we want to be treated. Project that upon them. So who is my neighbour? And to ask it, it would be silly not to refer to the one place in Scripture where somebody else asked the same question. Who is my neighbour? However, I am aware that I have already touched on this particular verse and brought a little bit out. 
And now you're all thinking, did he? I can't remember that. So we'll see if you do remember it. And I can get away with repeating myself. So let's read from Luke chapter 10 and verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And answering, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered right. Do this and you shall live. But he, willing to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And answering, Jesus said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell amongst robbers, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. By coincidence, a certain priest came down that way, and seeing him, he passed by on the opposite side. In the same way, a Levite, also being at the place coming and seeing him, he passed on the opposite side. But a certain travelling Samaritan came upon him, and seeing him, was filled with pity. And coming near, he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And going on the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him. Whatever more you spend when I come again, I will repay you. Then which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell amongst the robbers? And he said, the one doing the deed of mercy to him. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Amen. Now today, if you've been putting much thought into the things that I've been saying to you, you're probably thinking this is going to be a difficult message for me to get around some of the things that I've been teaching recently. As I've unveiled the direction I want us to go as a church, I've been teaching over and over again that we must produce a gospel-first message. It's not a case of feeding the homeless and then giving them a gospel. It's got to be the other way around. It's got to be the gospel first. Having taught that I believe the scriptures teach us that what they call liberation theology is wrong, and liberation theology suggests that if we take care of the needs of someone before they will accept Jesus as saviour, that they won't accept Jesus as saviour until their life comes into some kind of harmony. So if we help their lives to get into some kind of harmony, then they will accept Jesus as saviour. But I'm afraid, friends, that is backwards. It's the wrong way round. Until we put our faith in Christ, we will not find harmony. We just won't find harmony. And the biggest causes of poverty, the biggest causes of all these issues are, of course, sin. And the only solution for sin is salvation in Christ Jesus. We cannot help them to find harmony unless we show them Christ Jesus and help them to find him. And it's through Christ Jesus that they will find harmony. Corinthians teaches us that we, every single person here, is a seed. And you know, seeds are no good for anything until you bury them in the ground and they die. And that is the sense of what we had to do. We had to die to ourselves. We were buried with Christ Jesus and what arose from that was a great and wonderful fruit that bears fruit of Christ Jesus. That is what we are. That is what we must be. Until then, until we're buried with Christ, 
We are just a dead seed, which really isn't useful for anything, which is small and won't produce as much as it will when it's died. It won't produce anything, except for popcorn if you heat it up, until it's transformed and renewed. Friends, I've often believed, and I believe it now, that the social gospel is the wrong way to go. Attempting to be witnesses to Christ through our charitable work has no future. Even though so many churches chase after it. And why do I think that? Because the church isn't the only people that are being charitable to people. Therefore, it doesn't define that, oh, well, the only charitable people are Christians. Lots of people are charitable. The Muslims are charitable. Lots of people are charitable. It's a big thing to be charitable in this day, to be a part of the Lions, to be a Rotarian, to be involved in all these kind of different organisations of those different things. Anybody could be charitable. Here is a simple truth, friends. A born-again Christian who's homeless is in a better situation than somebody who doesn't know the Lord and isn't a millionaire. And if we don't accept that, if we don't hold on to that, then we are missing the point of us meeting together. Because the purpose of the church is to witness of what Christ Jesus has done in our lives that other people might get saved. That is the purpose of the church. But more importantly, Jesus taught us, the poor you will have always. And the truth is that liberation theology goes hand in hand with that other dangerous doctrine, which is kingdom now theology, which says that this is already the kingdom of God. And if it is, I want my money back. Because I feel like this is nowhere near the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is going to be so much greater and wonderful than what we have now. But there is a belief that we as the church, if we just get everything perfect, then Christ can return. But unfortunately, only God, only Christ Jesus will be able to make the world a better place. Why? Because the solution to all the issues is sin. And the solution to sin is Christ Jesus. Those people who believe in making it a better place, hold on to that. It's wrong. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost from within the muck and the mire of the world. Although many may be saved, not many will be saved. And that's the truth, friends. Now, I'm not suggesting that Christians shouldn't be charitable. And really, this is a thing we're going to talk about today. As Christians, our spirits should have compassion on people. As the Lord leads you. But remember this, friends. Jesus didn't go chasing after the young, rich ruler. He didn't say to him, well, come on, you know, let's think about it. Let's talk about it. Let's see if there's a compromise we can come to. He told him the way of salvation. And he left him with the message. We are here as a beacon of hope. And that hope is Christ Jesus, not a warm meal. Because that is temporal. Christ Jesus is eternal. And that is the thing that we need to offer. And it's very, very important. So that's what I've been teaching. So how do I get around this Good Samaritan then? Having just said all of that and we've just read the Good Samaritan doing all this wonderful and good work. For many, the words that we read there, the one who showed mercy... Show my earlier, shower my earlier comments with cold water. And a close look seems to question all that I've just said to you when we read 
the story of the Good Samaritan. So does that mean I need to recant of everything I've been teaching you? Because when we look at the Good Samaritan, it shows these good works that the Samaritan did as an example to us and that the walking on by was wrong of the Levites. In verse 31, it says this, it says, by coincidence, the Levite happened to be walking past. The word that's used here for coincidence is only used here in the whole scripture. It's never used anywhere else. The word is songkuria. Songkuria. I'm getting better at these Hebrew words. Songkuria. And this is its only place. Now, the word has fallen out of use in the Hebrew language, but it's believed to be as close as you can get to the words God incidents or divine providence. By divine providence that this man who was set upon by these thieves, a Levite came along and then a priest came along. By divine providence, by a God incidence, Essentially showing that what Jesus is saying is that as this man was beaten and robbed on a lonely road, a wonderful act of providence happened. Yet by what the Levite did, it seems he missed his God-given opportunity to do the right thing and to serve his neighbour. Well, that doesn't really help me much either, does it? We're still on the same kind of issue. Let's look at the end. It says Luke ten thirty six. Which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one doing the deed of mercy to him. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Notice here that the lawyer asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? But Jesus didn't answer the question. He didn't answer him and said, well, these people you're a neighbor and that person's your neighbor, but not those people down there. They're not your neighbor. These people, he didn't do that. The way that he answered is by telling him how it is to be neighbourly. As he said there, which one do you think was neighbour to him? Not which one was your neighbour, which one was neighbour to him? And that doesn't help my cause either. I seem to have shown that Jesus taught through the Good Samaritan that the Lord caused the supernatural coincidences so that this poor destitute man could be served by one of two of the Lord's servants, yet they both failed to act. But his enemy, the Samaritan, did, by tending his wounds, practical help. By taking him to an inn, inconveniencing himself, and then paying for his stay, personal sacrifice. And that this man was held by Jesus as an example of being a neighbour. So am I to apologise for what I've just said before when I said that we shouldn't be doing all of this? Well, friends, never. I will never apologise. Never. (laughs) The answer lies in the question that the lawyer asked in the first place that we might understand it. In Luke 10 to 25, the lawyer says this, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The question itself implies there is something you could do to inherit eternal life. And realising that, you get to understand the whole message. That this lawyer was asking what he might do to inherit eternal life. As if there's anything that we can do 
to inherit eternal life. There is nothing that we could do to inherit eternal life, friends. It is the gift of God that was given to us freely. The job of these lawyers was to interpret the Torah to a people who had lost touch with the word. You know, we've been talking on the Sunday night about the people going into exile. The ones that came back couldn't speak the language of the Torah. Only so many of them could. And so what raised up was this rabbi class of people. They would come and they would explain the word to people who couldn't read it for themselves, who couldn't know it for themselves, and didn't understand what it meant. It would be their job to translate it. They would be entirely reliant on them. These rabbis grew powerful. And so when two rabbis met together, like Jesus did with this other lawyer, it would be a contest of interpretation as they started to debate over whether this comma means that or that comma means another. And they would see if they could argue. Well, all the people sat around and went, oh, isn't this wonderful that they're arguing over different little elements of the scripture? We're going to get a, a much fuller interpretation of it. This lawyer attempted to get Jesus involved in such a discussion as this to talk about an interpretation of, of a point of law by asking Jesus about eternal life. But the gospel writer winks at us as we pick up what Jesus did straight away. This lawyer believed in a works-based salvation. And Jesus wasn't about to waste his words arguing with such a man. So we asked him the same question. What does the word say? What's your understanding in this? So the first part of the answer to Jesus' question was something even a child could answer. We've been looking at it. It's so commonplace, the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. By definition, friends, that's an all-consuming task. It should involve every element of you. You can't do any more than if you love the Lord your God with all your soul, all your mind, and all your soul. But there is no salvation by our love for God. Only by his love for us. The second part, though, was more down the line of what these rabbis did. Because love your neighbor as yourself is not as obvious as the Shema is. Every day, a Jewish male has to say that, love the Lord your God with all your heart, twice. He says it in the morning and he says it in the evening. Even today, that is still the principle. But the second part, love your neighbor as yourself, is a more obscure thing, hidden away in the law. It's taken from Leviticus 9... 18, where it says, You shall not avenge nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The great Hillel, who was considered to be the Pharisee of Pharisees, the teacher upon teacher for all of Judea, a generation before Jesus, he died. So every rabbi would always try and quote Hillel because if you quoted Hillel, it meant that you were a really clever person if you quoted these great big teachers. And so he quoted him as much as he could. And Hillel said that love your neighbor as yourself is the essence of the law. Everything else is just an explanation of the law. And loving your neighbor as yourself is something that's taken up over and over again in the law. You'll see loads of, don't do this to your neighbor. Don't do that to your neighbor. 
And it's even in the Ten Commandments. It's all of these things in there. The, the way you treat your neighbor is a massive element. How to treat your neighbor is repeated over and over again. But for the teachers of Jesus' day, who your neighbor was is the most important element of that discussion. Because the Jews of that day were taught that only Jews were neighbors and everybody else wasn't a neighbor. Only the Jewish people were your neighbors. Everybody else was an enemy and you could do to them as you wanted. So what we have here is a lawyer who knew this obscure element of the law as a central pillar, just as Jesus had taught. And Jesus had taken this obscure part and made it a central pillar of Christianity. But the lawyer had one major flaw that Jesus didn't. He didn't see everybody as his neighbor. Hence, the law didn't apply to all of his daily contacts, just to the ones that he liked. So he only had to be nice to the people that he liked or the people that were his own people. He didn't have to be nice to anybody else. He didn't have to follow through the laws with anybody else, only the people that he liked. And so he saw that improving relations of the fellow Jews was important to God, but separation from all else was vital. His motive in discussion with Jesus was not to trap him, but to justify himself, to make himself look good. That's what he wanted to do. And these beliefs, he had a chance to show all of his own disciples, those that followed him, that the great Jesus agreed with me. And it highlights this great error that all of Israel had at this time, that the Lord had to come and change and challenge. And friends, it should challenge us as well. We took the separation that the Lord caused of Israel and the Lord caused Israel to be separated and it was based on purification and on renovation. And we've been looking at that over Sunday nights. The Lord separated Israel that they may be pure and spotless, that they may be renovated, that they may be an example to all of mankind what it is to be a child of God. That was the purpose of it. But they took God's principle of separation, which was for purification and renovation, in a way to be an example to everybody. And they changed it to the Pharisaic teaching of being self-righteous and prideful of the existence that you have as God's special people. And therefore everybody else be damned because we're God's people. And we don't care about the rest of you. And all that did, friends, is make them be more and more hated over the centuries because of that. Jesus wanted to correct this error, and he did so through the parable. Having shown the appearance of the right Jews, who in the lawyer's case should have interpreted the law the way he did, so that when the Levite and the priest came across this poor man that had been beaten, then they should have interpreted the law, well, he's a Jew, therefore he is my neighbor, therefore I must love him and help him. But they couldn't do that because they didn't know who the man was. So they decided he might not be a Jew, therefore I can't do anything for him, so I'm just going to walk on by. It was best to stay away, lest they broke the law of God. They couldn't have compassion because it was all about you being self-righteous, about you being self-right before God. 
The compassion on your neighbor was replaced with the legal state to remain pure through acts of self-righteousness and not the self-sacrifice that the Shema teaches us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul and all your mind is a self-sacrificing action. That's what they tried to teach. But the compassion on your neighbor is replaced with this legal state to remain pure. The Samaritan whom are descendants of the northern tribe. That's the northern tribe who were carried away. The northern tribe who were forced to intermarry with the Assyrians. The northern tribe who caused all the problems for Israel. They brought in all the false gods. They did everything wrong. They set up the idols. And they caused lots and lots of the real people of God to be turned away. They were to be hated more than anybody because they were the reason for our destruction. Oh, we hate you. We hate you with a passion so much that the Jews would avoid Samaria. They would walk all the way around it, even though it was quicker to go through it. They hated them more than they hated the Romans. Because these were people who should have known better. Oh, they hated them. Because they were by definition people who didn't keep themselves separate. And they split the kingdom. Yet it was this person who they hated the most who was the one who was the most neighborly. You know, the lawyer couldn't even bring himself to say his name. He just said, the one who showed mercy. So instead of seeing the parable, which talks about the good works of the Samaritan, but that the laws in terms of self-justification, well, friends, what Jesus was teaching them was not to do good works, but this. If you're going to justify yourself by your good works... Even your most hated enemy can do good works. Even your most hated enemy can show you the right way to act. It was not an example of how we should be neighborly. It was teaching that if you believe that the works are how you get salvation, then even your most hated enemy can mimic it. Whereas they couldn't because they were tied in with a legalistic group. Therefore, when Jesus said, go and do likewise to the lawyer, He knew that he had bested him. Because to teach self-justification through separation, which is what all of the Jews were doing, all of the rabbis were doing, to teach that self-justification by separating yourself from everybody meant that you had to deny that second part of the law, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so by making that mistake, they got rid of half of the law that they already venerated and loved so much by saying in their hearts well we must be separate from all of these then they took away the idea of being neighborly friends we are not to be separate we are to be examples that is God's plan for us today I don't want to confuse the point of this message to justify our church direction Because that's not the question that we're answering today. The question is, who is my neighbor? In Hebrew, the word neighbor is reah. And it simply means another person. In the Greek, it's plesion. It also means the other person. The definition of... See, there would have been a much quicker sermon if I'd just said that. The definition of neighbor is all of mankind. All of mankind is our neighbor. It's the other person in the conversation. They are your neighbor. The other person 
the person who isn't you. They are the neighbour, the other person. And this was one of Jesus' points in the parable. All the world is our neighbour. Hence, to tie our three teachings together, we must love your neighbour as yourself. It means this, to love everyone in the world, no matter what they have done, in the same way you want to be loved. That's what it is to love your neighbour as yourself. To love everyone in the world, no matter what they have done, in the same way you want to be loved. In essence, friends, that is the mercy of God. That we who were once sinners and enemies of the Lord were made righteous by his obedience to love. In a manner, he wanted us to love him. Jesus sacrificed himself upon a cross. He wants us that we might self-sacrifice ourselves so that we might save others as well. Friends, let us never fall into the trap of separating ourselves into a holy huddle because that's dangerous. We could separate ourselves into a holy huddle. And the reason I wanted to bring this in that element is because we've taught a Jesus first gospel, I'm not talking about let's get rid of everybody that isn't a Christian. We don't want them within a hundred miles of us. We don't want any of their influences whatsoever. Friends, we must love one another, but this extends beyond the borders and boundaries of this church building. We must love every single one, even the ones that are practically unlovable. We must love them. I've never taught that we are here not to help those outside the church. I've just taught that the most superior help that we can give, friends, is to preach the gospel. And that is the truth. This is our mission. The most superior help we can give is salvation through Christ Jesus. The truth is that good works are easy. Preaching the gospel is hard. It can be easy to feed somebody who doesn't have food. It's hard to tell them that they need Jesus as saviour. But if we're moved with compassion to help one another, then do it, friends. But don't justify yourself by it. And friends, don't fool yourself to thinking that you are saving that person. The only salvation is through Christ Jesus. The sole purpose of this teaching over these last three weeks is that we must love our neighbours and show them mercy through the preaching of the cross. That's the mercy that we're showing. We are snatching them away from that fate that befits all of mankind. Yet for us, what we must pick up is on, that we don't fall into these same legalistic traps that lawyers, the lawyer fell into. In thinking that our neighbours are only the people we like. Our neighbours aren't just the people we like, friends. They're everybody. We see the parable is not how we do good works, but that if we seek justification for them, our separation doesn't make us the only ones who will do them. But friends, even preaching the gospel, if it's done with the purpose of justifying yourself, is done with the wrong motive. Even preaching the gospel in an attempt to say, look God, how good am I a Christian because I do this? It's just done with the wrong motive. What we need to do is be bold, to show mercy to our neighbours, not hide the truth from them, but letting them know that they are in mortal danger from sin. And friends, that Jesus is the answer. Let's just pray.
Father, Lord, we thank you for your word, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you challenge us this week, Lord, as we come and we see our neighbours, Father, Lord, those who don't know you, Lord. Let us not be afraid, Lord, to share with them what you have done in our lives. Let us not be afraid to show them, Lord, what you have done in our lives. Bless, I pray, and be with us, Lord, this week. In your mighty name, Father. Amen.